Anita, how's your mental health? <laughs> Questionable <laughs> at all times. You know this. Yeah. How's the mental health of your children? Um, also a little bit tricky. Can I tell you my experience in trying to find therapists for myself and my kids, Mel? Yes, please. Okay. This is how it goes. You ask around your friends and your family for a referral for somebody who's nearby. You finally find somebody who sounds like they might work for your family. You give them a call and you find out that A, they're not accepting new patients or B, they have a huge wait list. So you start over again and you ask people if they know anybody who would be a good therapist and a good fit. Finally, you find one, you go and you meet with them and you figure out that you don't actually like them that much. But it's been so much work to find somebody who you can go to in your area that you're kind of stuck with them. Well, do you have any ideas for how to get around this? Um, I do, because guess what? I've actually had some therapists that I have found on my own, which involves what you're saying. Sometimes I remember one time I was like three hours in the bathtub on my phone looking through yeah. websites. I was such a prune at the end. But I have also had the experience with working with BetterHelp and it was like, I, I don't want to say too good to be true, but because it is true, but it's like amazing because I was matched with my therapist within 24 hours. And you didn't have to go through all of that other ridiculous process of trying to find somebody. And here's the cool thing too, is if that person didn't work out for you, you can just switch and say, and it's not like you're committing to another years long search for somebody who you're going to jive with. It's true. And I lucked out or maybe just BetterHelp is really good at matching people together because I never had to change my therapist. I loved her. Perfect fit for me. And I know that some of our friends have used BetterHelp and they've had to change therapists and boom, same day can change. Easy peasy. You can ghost your therapist. <laughs> Get a new one. I love this idea. BetterHelp is one of our sponsors. If you use our promo code, trybetterhelp.com slash WWDN, you get 10% off your first month and we totally recommend it. Yes. Get some therapy. That's <laughs> trybetterhelp.com slash WWDN. Looks like you have a friend there named Balto. It's a stuffed It's a stuffed dog. Either way, you really need that stuffed dog right now. I do. If any of you follow me on Instagram, you will have noticed that the last two days I have tapped out, which also if you have followed me on Instagram, you know that I have never, ever done that before. So you just need to know that that's an indication of the severity of my feelings right now. A very not great weekend for Anita. I've witnessed this. Yes. What do you want to share about it right now? I'm not going to share all of the details yet. There are things in movement that I don't have control over and I don't want to be seen as trying to have control over them. This is so cryptic. And I hate, I hate, I hate cryptic stuff. I really do. But it just is what it is right now. So sorry. But what has happened has thrown me into a tailspin that I have not been able to recover and pull myself out of. And where I'm finding myself is that my sympathetic nervous system, and for you non-medical professionals, that's the part of your brain that fights or flights or freezes. 
it has been kicked into overdrive and everything around me is danger, 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 danger. And the things that I thought were safe, my sympathetic nervous system is telling me are danger. And so I feel like I'm completely isolated and alone and there's no there's no safety for me right now. And I feel like I can't trust my parenting and I can't trust the things that I have been doing that I thought were the right things to do. Did that make any sense? It did. And she will get back to you later when things are a little bit more sorted out <laughs> and she's ready to talk about it. The good news is, is that when this all went down, which was Friday, I I was just frozen. I was sobbing and I was just frozen and I could not see life moving forward at all from that point. And I texted my friends and I said, I'm not okay. I need help. And it was so hard to send that text because I didn't want to admit where I was. And they immediately were like, what do you need? And I said, I need my kids to be gone. I need to not be responsible for anybody. And they were like, send them over. So all my kids got sent to my friends' houses and I have not seen most of them since. They have just taken them and they haven't asked me to explain why I feel so incapable of being a human right now. They just have rallied and I'm so thankful. And so many people have sent me texts and messages like, how can I help you? And the answer is, is I don't know because this is all kind of inside my brain and there's nothing that can be fixed from the outside. But the support really helps. It's really nice to know that people care about me. There you go. There's my cryptic semi-explanation of where I am. So also on Friday, Anita came over after after she texted her friends. And what did you do? You went straight to the couch? Mm-hmm. We didn't even talk for a long time, but I put a weighted blanket on you. Not that it fixed anything, but it did it calm you down a little bit? I love the weighted blanket. I think that really helps. But I think what really helped was being with somebody, but not having to explain feelings or try to look or act a certain way. Because I find that when I'm around people, especially muggles, as we have <laughs> come to call them, I feel myself being pulled to or I at least am examining how I'm acting to try and decide if it's the quote unquote right way to be acting or to be performing, I guess. And so the fact that I just was able to be and not have to be a certain way was helpful. And then we went to Ikea. And when Anita came over, I'm not a parent. And so I don't know the ins and outs, but I am a widow. Those are the only things I could think of. Like sometimes the weighted blankets are so helpful because... I mean, not only are we dealing with trauma, stress, grief, we're missing a partner. And so we don't have the same sorts of physical touch. And not that a weighted blanket is a person, but sometimes it can help some of those things. So we are recommending everybody get a weighted blanket in times of need. <laughs> in times of trouble. I'm sorry, Anita. It's not okay, but it's okay, but it's not okay. And I just feel so confused. And it's so hard because I feel like we've been kind of getting better. And can I talk about something else too, Mel? <laughs> it's your podcast too. <laughs> this, <there's, laughs> this had some bad timing to it because I have found myself 
being on social media and watching other families and comparing myself to those families and even watching other widows and comparing myself to other widows. And that is a recipe for disaster. So for instance, I see other widows taking their kids on trips or I see families that take their kids skiing and I think, why can't you do that? Your kids are missing out because you aren't doing those things, which my logical brain says that's ridiculous. But my, again, my monkey brain is overwhelming me with feelings of being not good enough. And so all of this came as I was also dealing with trying to recognize that I was doing that to myself and trying to help myself not do that. It's so hard not to compare to other people and to compare your worst to their best. Comparison is a death sentence. It's the comparison is the thief of joy. That's one of my favorite quotes and I need it so much because I am a serial comparer. (laughs) Which is why you want everybody to rate and review our podcast. But that is a good thing, Mel. It's true. I mean, that is I am at heart a very competitive person. And that's why I have, you know, excelled in racing and things like that. But it sometimes rears its ugly head when I find myself competing with people I should not be competing with, which is everybody, honestly. I'm glad you're acknowledging this. This is good. <laughs> Thank you for the therapy session. How much money do I owe you? We've had a few this week. I know. We really have. It's been it's been a deep, deep therapeutic texting <laughs> bonanza. Texting bonanza and in-person rescue missions and gummy tacos. Mm-hmm. All the things. <laughs> Mel gave me a gummy taco and inside of it, there was like gummy tomatoes and gummy lettuce and gummy bears. And I was like, what kind of a taco is this? What taco has bears in it? A gummy taco. I guess. I guess that was the meat of the taco. It's so funny because I just, I wanted to talk about this next thing. And, and, and I realized it's a downer because it's about death. But then it's like, this whole podcast is about widows and death. So this is very appropriate, I guess. Anita and I just found out that one of her friends that she went to school with and one of my former neighbors is going to become a widow soon. And it makes me so sad that there are more of us. So guys, let's band together. Join the Widow Wives Club. If you need support, it's there for you. We've gotten a lot of new members over the weekend. And if any of you are listening and are new, basically what this podcast is, Anita and I are two young widows. I have no kids. Anita has kids. And we've been going for about, what, a year, year and a half. And a half. Mm-hmm. And we're telling stories about widowhood and grief and all that fun stuff. So that's where we're at. So welcome if you are a new listener. If you are not, welcome back. Today's episode's actually going to be, I don't even have words for it. <laughs> I I was going to say exciting, but it's like the opposite of exciting. It's not boring, but it's awful. And I can't help but think, though, Mel, I kind of hate when this happened, but I kind of love it when it happens, that this episode was meant for this week. The timing of this was just too 
close to home for me in many ways, although not, not in any way either, but just kind of a feeling, kind of the feelings of betrayal and the hard parts of widowhood. And then this episode is this week. And I'm like, what the heck? I'm telling you, your spirit guides are with you, Anita. I guess. They don't feel like it. Orchestrating all these things. It's okay. It's okay if you don't feel it. What about anything happen with you this week, Mel? Well, no. Other than you and I have had a lot of interaction this week. (laughs) Sometimes we assume that unless we had a huge life insurance payout, we don't really need to know anything about investments or even finances. But guess what? A little knowledge of finances is critical for all of us. Maybe your partner was in charge of that stuff, and now you find yourself making all the decisions. Maybe you're mad about that. Maybe I am. Nicole from the He's Gone But the Money's Not podcast is here to help. She tackles financial literacy by telling the stories of women and widows and finance experts and shares the lessons they've learned as certified financial planners. Whether you know a lot and feel confident in your financial decisions or feel unsure about all of that stuff, there is more to learn. Listen and subscribe to the He's Gone But the Money's Not podcast on all podcast platforms. This ad was paid for by Rock House Financial, an SEC-registered investment advisor. This week, you have been my emotional support animal. I'm here for you. I wonder if they would let me take you on a plane. You know what? I bet you could, and I bet you wouldn't even need to get an approved letter from a therapist to take me with you. Just because I could buy you a seat? Is that what you mean? Yeah, I wouldn't have to lay on the floor under your feet. (laughs) Are you ready for the Patreon shout-out, Mel? Sure am. I feel like it's the only positive part of our introduction, so let's do it. Okay. We'll start with our dead husband, Patron. Patron! (laughs) I'm setting my head upon the microphone. Constance Dahlbach. The artist formerly known as Cat. Ivan Meisner. Go, widows, go! From our secret patron, Katie Kuntz. Don Satterwhite. David Kelly. Now we'll do our widow wives and widow besties. We have Dennis Brazo. Kirsten Stromberg. Danielle Catterberg. Amy Sapp. Tammy Schwartz. Valerie Chon Packer II. Marie Hoffman. Lori Farrington. Emily Thornton. The Fancy Lady. Jamie Aliota. Christina Scambato. Shannon Helm. Marjorie Lewis. The best semi-hair colorist in the nation. Black Wendy. Ashley Hahn. Kara Scara. Jenny Taylor. Anita's mom. Mel's mom. Karen from Canada. Fist bump Rachel Barbosa. Woo! Ileana Bell Ruiz. Anna Tracy. Gabe Lozano. Aaron Posick. Jenny Barrow. Christine Anderson, Diana Becker, and Sarah Morris, the angel of Trader Joe's, of the Trader Joe's angel. If you're interested in us reading your name, maybe pronouncing it wrong, you can sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash WWDN. You can also buy us a taco at buymeacoffee.com slash widow we do now. Patreon has different tiers and you can get different things. So check it out. Yes. You don't even know what you're in for, you guys, with Shannon's episode. This is a lot. And we love Shannon. She's amazing. 
Buckle your seatbelts, guys. I'm Anita. I'm Mel. And we're just two young widows trying to figure out... Widow, we do now. Warning. The following interview contains discussion of suicide, child abuse, drug abuse, mental illness, and domestic abuse, and may not be suitable for some listeners. Please be advised. Okay, Mel, are you ready? I am so ready, Anita. I'm not sure that you are actually ready. I am. Are you sure? I mean, I guess I'm not going to know until we get into this story. When we get to the end of the story... And the end of the interview, I'll ask you again. Were you prepared? And then you can tell me if you were not. This is our new friend, Shannon. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. In a past life, I met Shannon's sister because she is the queen of cookies. Well, isn't isn't that a title? <laughs> like the best title? Yeah. So I, before my husband died, I used to decorate really fancy sugar cookies. And they have... A conference for this called Cookie Con. Mel's mind has just gone off the edge. So this is like Comic Con, but with cookies. Correct. Do you wear costumes? Um, some people do sometimes. <laughs> I think we need Widow Con since there's a con for everything. That would be way fun. Anyway, Shannon's sister and her brother-in-law are the Cookie Con people. They're the people who put it on. So that's how. You know what, though? They are not because I feel like for a lot of conferences, the whole point is to make the people a lot of money. Like they're there to like gouge you and try and nickel and dime you. And I feel like Karen and Mike are not doing that. So hi, Karen. Hi, Mike. Hi. Hi, Shannon. We're actually here to talk to you. It's okay. so, I'm used to, I'm used to living in her shadow. So, well, the reason that I'm bringing up Karen is because... Karen reached out to me pretty shortly after Jason died and was kind of like probing me for some information. That sounds like an alien. She was asking me some questions and then, and then kind of little by little, I found out, you know, what was going on in her family and it was pretty, pretty heavy duty. And Shannon can explain more. Ready? Go. So are we ready for this? I'm in Washington state um little north of Spokane and I grew up here this is where we grew up um I met my husband when he was 14 I was 15 and that's important because I was a sophomore and he was a freshman and I wouldn't have anything to do with him (laughs) but uh he was one of my best friends so all through high school we just hung out and he was one of my best friends I went off to college um and I had some really bad dating experiences just kind of all in a row. And I came home for the summer and I was like, all I wanted was to see Andrew. I was like, I just want to see Andrew. And I saw him and suddenly he wasn't a freshman anymore. And I thought, wow, I don't know why I didn't see this before. And it was just that summer we dated and, and we knew it was, of course, it was like, of course, we're going to get married. So um, he ended up going on a two-year mission for the church and for our church. And he um, and I waited for him and he got back and we got married. And Karen, my sister, 
um, called us Anne and Gil from Green Gables. He was my Gil because I didn't see it at first. And then I realized, oh, I love this guy. So um, so we got married. I was done with school, had my bachelor's degree. He had not had any school. And so nine years of school, he became a pharmacist. And six kids later, um, we had six babies, kind of boom, 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 popped them out like a Pez dispenser. And we knew we wanted to have a big family and we wanted to get it all out of the way. So we had them pretty close together. And then, like I said, he graduated pharmacy school and we already felt like we had lived a lifetime. Like it was, it was pretty crazy. His first year of pharmacy school, he actually had to drop out because he was, he started having kind of a mental, emotional breakdown. And I knew that he struggled with depression. I found out actually after um, we got married, quite a while after we got married, that he had been sexually abused as a kid. And I didn't know that. Um, and so he struggled. He had a, he had some struggles. So he, um, about that time is kind of in my mind when things started to change, but it was Andrew. It was like, I knew him it since was he was Gil. Yeah, it was my Gil. Um, and it seriously was, I just, and, and so I probably put up with more and I, I, I you know, I, kind of would like to have a disclaimer that as I tell my story, there's a lot to judge. There's a lot looking back. I would think I wouldn't do that again. I wouldn't, you know, but at the time I was doing the best I could. And I know now being out of the situation kind of better what was happening. I didn't know it at the time. It was very slow. slow I think that's slow. totally fair for everybody's story. Like yeah. Yes. Of course, you're never doing anything on purpose that is not help or healthy for you or your family. You're just doing what you're doing right then the best yeah. you can. Yes. And hindsight's always 2020. So And Jay-Z. No judgment zone. Oh, oh I thought you were talking about Jay-Z, no, no. like Jay-Z, <laughs> the rapper. Got it's it. also the no Jay-Z zone. That kind. Okay. He's not a widow. Not, not a widow. <laughs> Actually, if he wants to listen, he could totally be our dead husband or more. Just, okay, keep going. Sorry. He would be a lucrative <laughs> dead husband. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. Right? Okay, Jay-Z, you're, you're, you're allowed to <laughs> back in. Back in. Okay. Beyonce, please let him in. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Andrew gra graduated pharmacy school. He was doing really well. In, at work, he was just phenomenal as a pharmacist, and he actually got um, a job working at Target headquarters in Minnesota. Um, so we moved to Minneapolis, and about that time, um, he kind of started questioning life, questioning beliefs, questioning faith, um, and he started drinking at that time, and which in our religion, that's taboo and so it was kind of a underground it was more underground than it would normally be probably for a normal person to drink and so he would he would drink a lot and that's kind of how he dealt with life um so again things between us were kind of falling apart and life was 
life was getting very hard. We ended up, he lost his job with Target. We moved back to Spokane. Um, I was happy to be back with family. And um, so that was in 2014. In 2017, um, I got a call from a detective that was um, investigating my husband because of some things my daughter had said at a girls camp um, for the church. And he and they were investigating my husband for sexual abuse. And I knew of an incident when my daughter was about six that he told me at the time um, it was. I say it's benign. Nothing in that realm is benign, but in my mind, it was benign. And, um, and so at this, during this 2017 investigation, he said, that's all it was, you know, is this worth losing my job over? Is this worth, I would, I would not be able to be a pharmacist. I would have a criminal record. Our family would be destroyed. Um, and I, from my point of view, we had, we had worked through it as a family back when she was six, we had made some changes. We had talked to her about it. We, you know, and so he convinced me to basically lie and together we convinced my daughter to retract what she had said. Um, and so we kind of thought, okay, that's done water under the bridge. Um, but things continued to get worse with my husband. He kind of continued to deteriorate and, we get to uh, actually January or sorry, December of 2018. I had a concussion um, that was pretty severe. I just passed out and hit my head on a big, huge bedpost. And Anita, I've heard you talk about Jason going to crazy town. And that's what happened to me. I went, I was hallucinating. I was like, TVs were talking to me. It was, it was crazy. So my um, January, Andrew said, you've got to go stay at your parents, you know, get over this. And let's, so I, most of January, 2019, I spent at my parents, which was kind of the first break I'd had for a very long time. <laughs> and um, I was, I went back in February thinking, okay, some things need to change. You know, I was kind of, I, I was kind of coming to my senses, I think. And it was making Andrew pretty mad. And we used to have fights. Uh, and he would get really angry. And so this one fight, he'd been drinking. And he actually had me in a headlock. And my kids burst into the room. And they're like, Dad, what are you doing? And um, for my daughter uh, that had originally reported him, I think that was kind of the last straw. And she said, um, so I said, it's fine. It's fine. You know, we closed the door. I calmed Andrew down um, and I needed to switch the laundry. <laughs> so I went downstairs to switch the laundry. And my youngest daughter, who was six at the time, came in and she said, um, how many clothes do I pack? And I said, what? And she said, we're going to grandma's. How much clothes do I pack? And my oldest son was standing there and he just looked at me and he said, mom, we know what dad did to my daughter, my oldest daughter. And I said, I was just like, what's going on? I went upstairs. I said, Andrew, get out here. Something's going on. My daughter had called her boyfriend um, and told him everything and said, call the police. And 
then called he, my oldest two kids called um, Andrew's parents because they lived closer and said, come pick us up. He was really upset, um, yelling at them, screaming, if you take these kids, I'll never speak to you again. And I was like, just let them go. Just let them go. I knew that, that we needed to resolve this and he, they needed to be out of the house. And so it was just ugly. It was just ugly. And um, so the kids left and Andrew sat down. He'd, he'd had back pain for years. So he had a bunch of pain pills and fentanyl patches. And he started putting on the fentanyl patches, ended up putting on 30 fentanyl patches and took a handful of hydrocodone. And promised, made me promise not to call anybody and said, will you lay with me until I die? Well, first, first he asked me if I would go with him. And I said, no, <laughs> I got kids. I no, I'm, I'm not going with you. I'll lay with you. I'll lay down with you. So we laid on the bed and I laid with them and it just got to be too much. I was just, I was in shock and, uh, but it got to be too much when his breathing was labored. So I called the paramedics. And so this was the end of February of, so we're coming up on the two year anniversary, end of February, 2019. And he went to the hospital and the police started investigating. And suddenly I was under investigation too, because he had told my daughter that I knew everything about everything, which it turns out it was much more than this incident when she was six. And he had told her that, mom knows and she's okay with it. And so that's what she thought in her head. And I still, I still didn't know the extent of everything. Um, so he was in a coma unconscious for about a week. And then he woke up and I got a text one Sunday. So the kids, um, had to say they CPS took them away they had to stay at grandma and grandpa's his, his parents because I was staying at my parents and um so we, I got a text on a on Sunday about two weeks after it happened said can you bring me some clothes the police are on their way and you know they had cut off all his clothes in the emergency room so I was like okay and my brother was in town to help support me and so he said you're not going alone let's go get some clothes and I'll take you and so he took me to the hospital and I saw the officer come in and we were just sitting in a waiting room and Andrew came out of the room handcuffed and it was just horrifying. It was, it was horrifying to watch. And, uh, so he, they got in an elevator and my brother said, you know, maybe we can take a different elevator. <laughs> I was like, Oh yeah, I don't really want to be in the elevator with that. So, so um, they took him to jail. And in the meantime, so I had hired a lawyer, a family lawyer. Obviously I was concerned about getting my kids back at that point. I was like, I will do whatever it takes to prove that I was not part of this and to get my kids back. Um, and so my lawyer had advised me, we'll start the divorce process because you need to show that you are not loyal to him at all. And um, so I had started the divorce process and she said, have no contact with them at all. So I talked to him when he went to jail, like he got his one phone call or whatever. And um, I talked to him then. And I, 
I've heard you both of you ladies, you know, say that there's no handbook. Yeah, there's no handbook for this situation. My husband's in jail and tried to commit suicide and my kids are sitting there and I have to tell them, dad's not in hospital hospital anymore. He's in jail. And I'm still thinking as a mom, I put him on speakerphone. I'm like, say hi to the kids. (laughs) And they're like, hi, dad. Like, what do you do? And so that turned out to be the wrong thing to do um, per CPS. And so I got my visitation rights taken away. Um, And this was two days before my daughter's 11th birthday. And they said, you can't be only supervised visits. And I said, are you kidding me? I said, it's her birthday. I can't even go to her birthday. And they said, no, we don't have a supervised visit lined up. So you'll have to miss it. And it really stunk. It was really horrible. And I, so I was not supposed to discuss anything with the kids as far as dad, just, I couldn't talk about anything. And so I didn't know, I couldn't talk to my oldest daughter and say, I didn't know what was going on. I promise when he was arrested, um, my brother said, do you want to see the charges? And, um, I said, at first I said, no. And then I said, no, I need to know. I need to know what his charges are. And so there were about eight of them and they just made me sick to my stomach. It was, and from the charges, I could tell that it was more than one daughter and that it was, it was more intense than anything I had thought. And so it was just, it was just sickening. And, um, So I was kind of dealing with all that and one day staying at my parents again and the police officer called and he said, where are you? I said, I'm at my parents. He said, can I come talk to you for a minute? And I thought, okay, more questions. And so he came to my parents. He said, I'm putting you under arrest. And I was like, seriously, (laughs) can I get dressed? I'm in my pajamas. Like it was just, I said, uh, Okay. So I went to jail and um, my parents bailed me out. I have a criminal record. I have. Yes. I, that was. <laughs> Which is so funny looking at you because you're obviously not. <laughs> <laughs> so. I'm in jail thinking, can I get any worse? Like what else? You know? And I was basically, I didn't know how I was going to support my family. Um, I, it was just, it was just the lowest of the low. Uh, my parents bailed me out. So I got, I didn't have to stay very long, but um, it was just, I had no idea what my future was going to hold. And my lawyer agreed that um, it was probably a kind of a ploy to get me to testify against my husband to scare me. And so I, I was preparing for all of these scenarios again not having any contact with Andrew so I got a call from the hospital from the neurology department and they said they needed to talk to me about my husband and they she left a name but I couldn't really understand the name and I didn't get the message right away and so I was like well okay they probably have something to talk about but what happened with the drugs you know whatever and so I think it was the next day I called back And I said, somebody called me from the neurology department. I'm not sure who it was. 
they're like, well, we're not really seeing anything. We're not sure who called you. So I was like, okay, well, if it's a big deal, they'll call me back. So Saturday, um, my kids were actually at my parents. They were visiting my parents. I was at home by myself and I get a call from the neurology department. And they said, um, we have Andrew here. He's in a coma. We need your permission to take him off life support. And I just started bawling and it was just this huge relief. It was like, it's over. He's dying. And that's the answer. It's what he wanted. It's what's best for the kids. I mean, it was just, I, I, I didn't have any words to describe it, but I called my brother right after that. I didn't want to call my parents in case one of the kids heard. Um, so I called my brother and I was just bawling. I said, all I can feel is relief. And he said, Shannon, that's probably okay. <laughs> and so I went to his parents and they said, you know, you make whatever decision you want, but we know that he didn't want to live and just especially doesn't want to live like this in, in, you know, he was basically brain dead. And so the drugs had just kind of continued to deteriorate his brain. And so I don't have, I don't have the full story, but um, I went into the hospital and he was just sleeping. He was just peacefully like, kind of snoring a little bit. And I was like, he doesn't have handcuffs on. There's my gill sleeping. He's, he looked peaceful and quiet. And I was just happy. I was like, the nightmare's over and, and he's peaceful and it's great and it's happy. And I was seriously like kind of happy is all I can say. What they were doing was they were going to take his feeding tube out. And so I authorized that. And um, so this was on a Monday that I first visited him. I went on a Friday and he was he looked like he was starving to death and it was horrifying <laughs> and it was, it was horrifying. I, I wish that I wouldn't have gone that day. Cause it was like, I wish that that peaceful, nice image I had would have been what stuck with me, but I went and they, they were talking about moving him to a hospice and they were, the hospital and the hospice were kind of fighting because they knew he was going pretty fast and they, Anyway, I said, well, please just let me know. I don't really have an opinion. Just let me know. And please let me know when he's about to go so I can be there. And they said, yeah, we will. Um, so then I get a call on Wednesday expecting them to say that he was on his way. And they said he passed away this morning. And it's over. <laughs> go to the funeral home and figure it out. So I did. And I was just in get it done mode. I was like, okay, we're going to have him cremated. I, you know, cause I didn't want anybody to see him in the shape that he was. And I said, we're going to have him cremated. We're going to do it this day. We're going to, you know, have a memorial invite only family, you know, it's basically just family and things like that. And, but I still couldn't, I still couldn't see the kids. I was allowed to see them for the funeral and to go out to eat afterward. Um, and then they had to go back to grandma's and I couldn't talk about it with them. I couldn't comfort them. I couldn't do anything like that. So in some ways it was actually good. I mean, I just had, I had time to work through it myself before I 
kind of work through it with them. But that's the gist <laughs> of my story. <laughs> okay. Mel, I'm going to ask you again. Are you prepared? <laughs> I don't know what to say. It's, it is. It's an onion. It's my grief onion. This is complicated. Yes. Many layers. Most of our guests on the podcast have been at least for the most part, happily married, and then their world fell apart. And they don't describe their spouse's death as relief. Now, we have had some, you know, semblance of relief for other reasons because of suffering or, you know, maybe they did have some problems with their mental health. But this is a whole different animal. And we thought it was really important to talk to you because this animal probably happens more than we maybe want to realize. Maybe not your exact circumstances, but when people didn't have a happy marriage or there was abuse or there was all sorts of things that lended themselves to that different feeling about death. And yes, and I need to amend that that relief was short-lived. I mean, it was, it was, a, and then, yes, I mourn, I mourn him. Yes. I don't want to sound hopeless and cruel. Um, and that's kind of what brought me to the widow wives club. So right after he passed away, my sister was like, Oh, you need to get in contact with Anita. She has this great outlook and, you know, and she's getting through this. And, and then I think I got introduced to some, some Facebook groups and, you know, young widows and widowers. And so I went to these Facebook groups and it was, and I was still kind of processing and these widow groups were like, Oh, I'm, you know, I miss him so much. When is he, you know, when is it ever going to stop hurting? When, and I just was like, I'm a fraud. Like, that's not me. I don't, you know? And so I was like, I'm, I'm fine. I'm doing great. My family's doing great. And so I just, I, I got out of the um, groups and, and then the shock wore off and reality struck. And I realized, so one of the things that I have come to realize is that I was mourning his loss long before he died. And so I went through, I, I was going through mourning for a very long time. And it, and what brought me back, I guess, to the Widow Wives Club and to your podcast was realizing that it is grief and there's a lot of trauma that I'm also working through and that my kids are working through. But at the end of the day, I'm grieving the loss of my spouse and the loss of the life that I expected to live. And, um, and so I listen to people's stories in the group or on the podcasts. And it's like, I know what that feels like, even though my intensity, the intensity might be different. The circumstances are different. I know what that feeling feels like. And so I can empathize with that and I can, um, you know, validated. It's validating to know that other people, even though the circumstances aren't the same, um, there's still that grief that that's, and that's one of the things I'm just kind of fascinated with is how universal the grief process is that they even have these steps so even in my wild and crazy story, I still went through those steps. I'm still going through those grief steps. You, in a way, 
are not just grieving the death of your husband, but you're grieving what you thought you were going to have with him. And that died a long time ago. And maybe you knew that. Do you think you knew that at the time or it took you getting out of that situation and looking back and saying, actually, it shifted at some point in time and it, he wasn't my gill and we were getting further and further away from what I thought my life was going to be, but didn't realize that it was slowly moving away from that. Do you think that you knew that before he died or it took him dying to realize? Yes and no. Um, I was definitely getting to a point where I, I was like, this isn't normal. This isn't. So he, he was, he was a man of very strong personality. He was, he had a very strong personality. He was very confident um, with others. You know, I, I could see his vulnerabilities and, and things, but he was very confident and he was looking back. The words I use are controlling and manipulative, but at the time I didn't use those words. I was like, it's just Andrew. It's his personality. And I, I used to tease him that I said, I don't know what powers of persuasion you have, but you can get me to do anything. And I would, you know, it was a kind of our joke. Um, but looking back, I realized it wasn't a joke all the time. And, um, it was, it became unhealthy, not that it's ever healthy, but it, it became like a pathological, I guess. Would you, would you categorize some of your relationship as codependency and enabling? Because that kind of can happen a lot of times with a really strong manipulative person. And then the partner that wants to, okay, if I, if I just shape up or I do things the right way, then, you know, then everything will be fine. Was it kind of like that? Yeah, it was. Um, I've had therapists, you know, they've given me books on codependency and things like that. And some of the, some of it really rings true to me. Um, and some of it as like, well, you're supposed to be a little codependent as a spouse, you know, like there should be some interdependency. Stephen Covey would be proud. Um, some interdependency, not necessarily codependency. Um, but there was a lot of, because I knew him when he was so young, because I, because we were such good friends, I was like, well, I know his heart. I know where his heart is. And I, you know, and so I, I would, I put up with a lot in the name of, in the name of love, in, in honesty, as long as we're just getting out there. So one of the things that he said towards the end, he had a girlfriend outside of our marriage. He was polyamorous and that was hellish. So I was in this state. And one of the things he said to me, I think it was in the December that I got my concussion. And he said, it's almost like we don't need a church anymore. He said, it's almost like we're a church unto ourselves. And I was just like, bells were ringing. I was like, this is like cult. Like this is weird. And it was not like that for our whole marriage. And there was a point where I was laying on the floor just sobbing. And I said, Andrew, I can't live like this anymore. And he just said, like, what? And I was like, like this, <laughs> like, I can't live like this. And he, he's like, did I do this to you? And I was like, I have no idea. I just know that I can't, I can't live like this anymore. And that was when things that December, that November, December, January, things were just coming to a head. And I knew that something was needed to happen. So how much money have you spent on therapy and have you budgeted a lot? More? Because <laughs> it's going to be like 
$2.2 trillion before you guys are done. And then I don't think you're going to be. <laughs> and that's, that's what happens when you have an onion because you get one layer off and you're like, yes, I'm fine. And then you get another layer. Um, but no, luckily insurance pays for my therapy. We can, we can, there's like one thing we can clap to in this. <laughs> insurance. Oh, here's another thing. Here's another thing. I know you've talked about life insurance. So Andrew had life insurance. Oh, and it normally, a lot of people are surprised that, um, I, I got it because he committed suicide, but there, <laughs> you know, I don't know if this is, if this is a, when you're shopping for life insurance, make sure it has a suicide clause, but you know, that's not something you want to think about. But, um, as long as you had the policy for more than a year, they would pay out for any death. Um, and we'd have the policy for a long time. So that's so complicated though, because you had filed for divorce. And when they said that they called you to ask if you could take him off of life support, you're like, well, I don't even know. Am I his person still? I don't know where I stand. If I am the one who's in charge of him anymore, I kind of don't want to be, but we've spent our whole life together and I kind of hate you, <laughs> but I have spent my life with you and I don't know who you are and I don't know who I am. And I'm just really in a bad spot right now. I, so I, I had started the divorce filings, but nothing was, he hadn't signed anything. It, so, so as far as that went, it was still there. It just never happened kind of a thing. How long was it until you got your kids back? Can you tell us a little bit about the death until then? Yeah. So he died in, um, on April 17th, 2019. And again, this is one of those things where I should probably know. I think it was June when the kids, when I got the kids back. Um, one of the things I had to do, I, I told him, I said, you know, I've got to be able to talk to my kids about this and I need to know, and I need to be able to tell my daughters, especially my, my oldest daughter that I didn't know what was going on, or I never back into 2017, I never would have said, just tell them you're making it up. Like I, you know, I just, and so I needed to especially talk to her. And so they said, well, we have this liaison that can, if, you know, she'll be there and make sure the things you say are age appropriate. And I was like, just let me talk to my kids. And so that went kind of a long way. She ended up being a, an advocate for me and a proponent. And she's like, I can see that you were just as much a, a victim of abuse as they were. And um, so she helped, she helped kind of navigate getting the kids back. And so I, I got them back in June, but there are still like just little vestiges, remembrances, like um, my mother-in-law is listed as their guardian at school. And I had to go and say, no, she's not their guardian. I'm, you know, just stuff like that, that you're never thought you'd have to deal with. And it's kind of embarrassing. What's your relationship with his parents? Like, or do you have one or do you not want to talk about it? All the options. So it was really hard, um, obviously after, and, and part of the reason I got reported was because my in-laws reported me, my, you know, the CPS, had told my in-laws that, um, you know, you're basically their guardians. And if she does anything out of line, you have to let us know. And so, and they didn't know, you know, so, so they were the ones reporting. So, and I think they felt a little bad for that when they realized what it came to was that I got my visitation taken away. So they felt a little guilty about that. And they, but it, it's really funny. I was listening to your stories 
and, you know, talking about and listening to people deal with in-laws. And I'm really grateful for my in-laws because I, I didn't think of them at all. <laughs> I was like, I did the memorial service my way. I did, you know, I didn't ask for input at all, except I got really mad at them. I went through the anger phase and there was a point where um, I was really mad at their son. And it's hard because their son reminds me a lot of Andrew, just physically, he looks like him. And so it's hard to be at family things, but they understand that. And, um, but at one point I took Andrew's ashes. They were in this little cardboard box. <laughs> I shoved them at my sister-in-law cause she was the only one there. And I texted my father-in-law and I said, I hate you all. <laughs> and I said, bury your own damn son. I don't want anything to do with it. And so they did, they buried him. And finally last year I was like, okay, I think I'd like to know where he's buried. And um, so I didn't even know where he was buried for a year. But I said, I don't want anything to do with it. I don't want my kids to have anything to do with it. But now we're on very good terms. And they, they said, we will help you. You are, they've told me, you're as much a child as Andrew ever was. You know, you're as much one of our children as Andrew ever was. And so they're, they're very supportive. So when you were yelling at them that you hated them, they're like, we get it. It's just like one of our kids yelling at us. She needs time. <laughs> it's like, it's our teenage daughter. I hate you. Yeah. <laughs> Bury your own son. Because that happens on a Tuesday. Slamming the door. Yeah. Were his parents aware of his abuse? No. So okay. that was shocking to them. So I like everything that happened when, when after they took the kids away, I fully forgive my in-laws. Like they were in, I was the one that had to tell them that he was abused. Um, and it was, so they were just in shock. Everybody was in shock. He had withdrawn from his family a lot. He, he barely saw his family. So they knew that something was up. That's, I was going to ask that if, if, if people around you were able to see what was going on or did everybody think it was just hunky dory or was everybody like Shannon, I mean, we're seeing some stuff here and you were like, it's, it's fine. It's fine. I promise it's fine. Or if, if people would have looked at you and thought that it was, everything was fine. I think both, I think people that were close to us, both his family and my family um, have said, you know, we could tell something was going on, but we had no idea what, and, and I've had people, I've had my family, especially say you are you are yourself again, you know, you are, you're Shannon again, and you were gone. We can clap for that too. That's two points. No, three points because life insurance and insurance and Shannon is Shannon again. Three points for Gryffindor. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to say that I think it's a total ripoff that you guys, that you knew him since he was 14. I feel like these stories should only happen when you meet them you know, when they're like 32 and then you find out about their like sordid backstory. It's like, that wasn't fair because you, that's not, it's not supposed to happen that way. Is that fair to say? I don't think it's supposed to happen anyway, but in my brain, it it's rude. <laughs> I agree. I agree. But yeah. yeah, you knew him as a kid. Like I, I knew who he was. Um, one of the things that I have posthumously post I don't know how to say that word posthumous posthumously post yes 
um, diagnosed awesome. is, <laughs> is borderline personality disorder. Um, and that, that actually, one of the characteristics is that it kind of is late onset. Like it happens, it kind of comes in your thirties. Uh, and I think that's kind of what happened. How long were you guys married? We were married for 17 years. You said after the fact you found out about more of your husband's abuse mm-hmm. on your kid. I don't even know what question to ask because it's just so much. What do you have to say to that? Or do you want to? Uh, no, that I think it's important. And it, it's been an important part of my journey because um, I will have those moments. I have moments of forgiveness and mercy and compassion for, you know, knowing that he was suffering mentally. Um, and I, I kind of forgive him for what, what he became. I don't know if that makes sense, but when it comes to my kids and what he did to my kids, I have a really hard time with that. And that's, and I feel like, I almost feel like I can't let that go because that would be betraying my kids. Like I need to be angry for my kids. Do you think that's something that you're like, they need to let it go. It's not mine to give away. It's not mine to forgive. It's theirs to forgive. Yes. Yeah. That's a better way of saying it. Where are they at at this point in coming to grips with all this? This is a lot. <laughs> yes. More than just like dad died. It's a whole yeah, lot. Yeah. And that's what's been hard um, because there was so much secrecy about dad drinking and about, you know, all these things. There was so, I felt like I was lying to my kids about things for so long that my my mantra now is just like, just say it like it is. Just tell them that honesty is the best policy and we'll get through it and just be honest. But at the same time, they're just at different levels of understanding. And so trying to balance that out. So I have one daughter who's 10 right now that he left alone. She didn't have any experience, any negative experience with dad. Um, so she actually came into my room one night and I knew that she was having trouble with grasping you know, with struggling with his death and things like that. And she was kind of, it was almost like, why are you guys not sad? Like, why, why am I the only one that's sad? And she came into my room one night and she said, mom, I keep thinking about dad. I keep thinking about that night that grandma and grandpa came. And I said, well, tell me about it. And so she told me about it from her perspective, which was heartbreaking. So from her perspective, grandma and grandpa came Dad was yelling, saying, I don't want them to go. She didn't want to go, but she went anyway. And then the next day he was in the hospital and she never saw him again. And that's like from her perspective. And she knew he went to jail, but she doesn't know why. And so that's kind of been my biggest struggle probably is. And and I've told her, I said, you know, dad did some bad things, which is which we're happy, you know, that's why he went to jail and we're happy. He's not doing those bad things anymore. I said, but, um, it's still okay to miss him. And we still miss him sometimes, sometimes. I mean, like there, he was just, it was just very oppressive, you know, anytime you have mental illness in the house, it's just, it's very oppressive. So all of my kids are doing so much better than they were a few years ago. I have two questions and one of them is kind of big guilt. How do you deal with that? Anita, I actually, so I've been wanting to talk to you a lot off air (laughs) because I read your 
Facebook things. And my heart just goes out to you. And I'm like, it is so hard. And so that's one thing too. It's I, I felt like a single mom for years before he died. I was doing everything by myself. And so it's really no different now, as far as my workload goes, I, it is no different. It's in fact, it's easier because I don't have to take care of him. <laughs> like I, I'm just relieved. And so as far as my workload goes, it's way easier. Um, and I, I finally have just come to a point where I had to tell myself I did the best I could. And I know in my heart that I, I did the best I could. And there are days that that's not enough and I still feel guilty and, and also putting the responsibility on him, you know, yes, I should have told the authorities. Yes. I should have said what I knew, but he was the one that did it in the first place. It wasn't me. And, and yes, I should have protected them or I should have been, I should have known this was happening. I should have, but in the end, you know, I really was doing the best I could. And he was a great distractor. Like he absorbed all the energy to himself. And so I was so focused on him and helping him that I just had to let something go. And unfortunately, a lot of times it was the kids. And so as far as that goes, I feel like I'm making up a lot right now. Like I, I try really hard to just be a good mom. What is a good mom? I'm not sure. Well, I see. What that even means. I think it just means you're trying, right? Yes, <laughs> you're, you're trying. I've given up. I've given up the good mom. I'm going for adequate mom. Oh yeah. I am impressed that you've shared your story that has so much trauma in it, and a lot of women are in domestic abuse situations, which they might not even consider to be domestic abuse. It's something that can start out good and then slowly things degrade and you always question yourself like maybe maybe he didn't mean to do that or maybe he's cheating oh no but then you see the good in him and so it's this whole vortex of manipulation and and questioning yourself and a lot of people don't understand it until they've been through it what would you Shannon say to somebody who may be questioning if they are in an abusive situation or not, because again, hindsight's 2020 when you're out of the situation, now you're your version of Shannon that your family knows, but in that moment you weren't. And it's so hard. You've been there and you are where you are now. What advice would you share? Um, someday Mel, I'm going to be the tour guide that knows everything and can say, this is what you should do. And I feel like I'm still learning, you know, I'm still, I'm still on the path. I'm still taking the tour myself. And so um, it's hard to say, but the thing, the thing that the two things I think that were important um, are to let yourself have time alone, get yourself out of the situation whether, you know, you don't have to say you're separating, you don't have to say you're breaking up, but just, just hit your head, hit your head and go to your parents. So you can leave for a little while. <laughs> yes. But not really. I'm joking. Don't actually do that, but maybe pretend that you did that. Yeah. Don't do this at home. You've got to get away from the person because they just, they have ways of convincing you that it's you. And the second thing is to listen to your instincts. You know, I can look back 
and that's you you squelch them you push them down because they're wrong they're you know you're told they're wrong or whatever so you stop listening to them and I probably knew but I didn't want to know that something was going on you know like maybe with my daughter I don't know but I didn't want to know and so listen to your instincts they get desensitized so you need to get away to resensitize them I thought those were two really good answers. You were like, I don't know. I'm not an expert. And then boom, <laughs> boom. And honestly, as, as somebody who's been through not quite your similar situation, but in, in relationships that are manipulative and destructive and technically abusive, I think those two pieces of advice are the only things people could maybe do when they are in that state of mind and in that kind of victimized situation. So I think that's perfect. Even though you, you know, you're still saying you're on your recovery journey. I mean, aren't we all like it's, you're going to learn more as you go along. And thank you for sharing that. I think that would help a lot of people that were in that. And that's what, that's what I really hope to accomplish in my life is to just be able to help. Like even now there are things that, you know, I mean, Andrew was pretty textbook borderline personality disorder and cult leader. <laughs> I mean, look at the definition of a cult leader. It's kind of him. And, um, and I still don't it, like, it's still hard for me to believe I was abused Like because I mean, he actually, at the end, he was more physical, but because it wasn't physical and it wasn't, he wasn't screaming at me that I'm worthless. And Again, in the end, he kind of was, but, um, and that's what, like you said, Mel, it's such a slow process, you know, down. And especially if you've known someone for a long time. And the thing that I keep coming back to is, cause I was like, I know his heart. I know. And, and one of the big things for me after he died was what was he consciously doing? And what was he subconsciously doing? Like, was he, I don't think he was out to hurt me if their actions are hurting, then it's hurting and you need to get away and you want people to be able to change and you want to give them the benefit of the doubt. But at the end of the end of the day, what he did hurt me and it hurt my kids. And that's what I have to remember. And that's, you know, um, as well as being the Andrew that I loved. It's okay to acknowledge the good in somebody and also to stay true to yourself and to take care of yourself because ultimately you are the only one that can get yourself out of a situation. Yeah. So is this a good time to ask, are you dating again? I'm totally joking. We got to work through this onion. Yeah. No. <laughs> that just sounds exhausting. I know. She's like, we got some stuff to work on at home before we, before we move out. Shannon, thank you so much for being willing to tell your story because this was not a story of sunshine and roses and potentially, I mean, We've talked a little bit about shame, and this is another story that could come with a lot of shame. And I keep saying this, that shame doesn't live in the sunlight. And it's like, you're taking this. And and maybe some of this got dragged into the sunlight, and you weren't ready for it to. But hopefully at this point in time, you're feeling like maybe you're in control of your story, and it's not in control of you so much. Um, but we really appreciate you being willing to share this, because I can't even tell you how many messages we receive with words along the lines of, I don't fit into the normal category. 
and the situations are different. It's not always this situation, what you've just described, but so many of our people feel like they don't fit in. And the truth is, and I think that you just so, like, I'm getting the chills right now talking about this. You really did a good job of saying, no, I don't fit in, but yes, I fit in. And I hope that all of the people who are listening who are saying, I don't fit in, that you realize that you do fit in, even if you don't fit in. The box changes shape as we keep adding more people and it's, we're creating it as life goes on. So yes. and it's you a, all belong. It's a dodecahedron now. Whoa, that was too fancy for me. <laughs> so thank you, Miss PhD. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, Shannon, thank you so much. I know that this will be inspiring and and help comfort people that are in sticky death situations or sticky life situations currently. And it means the world that you would be open and share those things. Because as you know, a lot of people especially that have spouses that have died by suicide or drug addiction or something, don't like sharing their story. Anita and Mel, I have to say thank you guys for being the safe place. I think what you guys do is really important. I've, it, it's so important for people to be able to tell their stories and and have the Widow Wives Club and just have people be able to say, I can't get out of bed today. And we say, we totally get that. And and we don't call CPS no, on no. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of us are in several widow groups. And one thing that I really love about our Widow Wives Club is nobody is shaming anybody else. Because we've seen in some others, a lot of people are like, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Go. Why are you complaining? Or like, nobody's pain is worse than mine. Kind of a, by the way, Shannon, you win. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, nope, nobody else gets to compete. <laughs> Shannon wins. <laughs> this is the worst. Well, and I, I've had people tell me, you know, they'll say, you know, they'll tell me they're struggling with whatever. And they're like, oh, but it's nothing compared to you. So I shouldn't be complaining. And I just want to say, of course, you should be complaining. It's, there's not, it's not a comparison. It's not a, you know. It's not a contest. Yes. Yes. It's a unique and strange ratio, unique to the individual. That's all that I was, to say. That there was cool. Yeah. So if you are considering joining our Widow Wives Club and you have not yet, join because Shannon is in there and all sorts of other people that have sticky situations that are there to offer support and understanding and no judgment. And Jay-Z. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe one day Jay-Z will be in there with us. Who knows? <laughs> Remember to check out our Patreon. We sure appreciate all the people who support us. If you would like to check that out, it's patreon.com slash WWDN. You can also buy us a taco at buymeacoffee.com slash widow we do now. I only care about rating and reviews right now, Shannon. (laughs) I am super competitive and I'm in a competition with all of the other widow podcasts and I'm like, we will have the most reviews. (laughs) like i can't let my kids even win games i'm like no i'm sorry i'm sorry that you're six i will dominate you in monopoly okay everybody please help me to deal with anita by appeasing anita and giving a good review and a rating and subscribing to our podcast and please share with anybody that you feel would benefit because we just want to help the most people that we can. Until we talk to you the next time, I'm Anita. I'm Mel. And I'm Shannon. And we're just two young widows and one widow who we're not even sure how she is still standing 
and we're just trying to figure out Widow, Widow we now. This is my favorite thing to discuss with you. Tell me, what well, is it? One of my favorite things. I do enjoy tacos and cheese and dogs. This is about how you cannot pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars for a phone plan, especially when you're a widow, your person is dead, you might have kids, you might need another option, and you just want your phone to work, you want unlimited texting and service, and you want it to be like 25 bucks a month. It blows my mind that they have plans that start at $15 a month. That is so cheap. And the cool thing is, is it uses other 5G networks, and so you don't have to pay extra for that, and you still get great service. Yep, Anita and I have traveled all over, and I have used my phone. So I highly recommend it, and my mom's even on it. When my dad died, we put his phone down to the cheapest plan, which is $15 a month. And I think my mom's on the $20 a month plan, and it's so worth it. It's so much cheaper than what we were all paying before. So I highly recommend it if you're on a budget or not. Who cares? Ryan Reynolds is in charge of the company and they send you free stickers with Ryan Reynolds temporary tattoos. It's kind of the best. So if somebody wants to sign up, what can they do, Anita? Go to trymintmobile.com slash WWDN. Seriously, you guys, such a great idea. Save yourself some money. And if you're worried about losing data or having any changes with your phone, not going to happen. They walk you through it. Everything's fine. It's the easiest process of all time. Again, that's trymintmobile.com slash WWDN.